Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for a chance to be together and to just be blessed in your word. We thank you for the power of your word that comes upon us and teaches us in, in all aspects of life, Lord. We just pray that you open our hearts and minds to receive what we have this morning to learn. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. At some point in time in the state of Kansas, sometimes in the 1800s, law was passed that you could not put a scoop of ice cream on cherry pie. Now, they're not sure if it's still on the books in the state of Kansas, but the good news for dessert lovers is that it's no longer enforced, okay? So if you're in Kansas and you're in a restaurant and you go to put that scoop of ice cream on your cherry pie, you don't have to hesitate because it's no longer enforced. Now, I tell you this law and you're like, that's a crazy law, right? It is a crazy law. It doesn't make any sense. Why would it be illegal to put a scoop of ice cream on cherry pie? As we come to uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew again, we're, we're back in the Gospel of Matthew. We had a wonderful month of missions month. Uh, our missionaries coming and talking to us about uh, missions and evangelism and, and reaching out to people for Jesus. And now we're back in the Gospel of Matthew, back in our series in Matthew and as we get to today's teaching, there's some things in this teaching that some people in our world might think is crazy, might think needs to be changed, right? We're living in the 21st century. These things need to be changed now. They shouldn't exist anymore. But the good news is that God's word doesn't change. It never goes out of style. So as we are disciples of Jesus Christ, as we are followers of Christ, we come to this scripture passage today in Matthew 5, and we say, okay, Jesus, what do you have to teach me? We continue on in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching all these people, and he comes upon these topics. The topics that he's going to talk about today are murder, adultery, divorce, and making oaths. You're like, oh, wow, that's exciting. I love those topics, right? You know, when you go through, straight through Scripture, the bad news is you don't get to choose what you preach on. But the good news is that you teach on everything that the Bible teaches on, right? And so there's something here that Jesus wants to say to us today. And I pray that we would open our hearts and minds that as we listen to the words of Jesus, that they would penetrate our hearts and our minds and speak to us some truth that Jesus wants us to hear this morning. In the Old Testament, God gave the Ten Commandments, right? The Israelites were freed from slavery, from Egypt, and they needed to be established as a nation. They needed to have rules and laws and guidelines to govern them. And so God gave them the Ten Commandments. In the Sixth Commandment, he told the people, Thou shalt not kill. You see that in the top right. Thou shalt not kill. The sixth commandment requires that we regard life and the safety of others as we do our own. That we see life as a gift of God, something to be respected and honored. The main thrust of this command is that killing someone without care or concern for their life is wrong. Self-defense is lawful because you're protecting yourself or someone else, but killing someone willfully is wrong. 
Now, as we come across this commandment, you might be like many that were in the crowd in front of Jesus, and you might think, well, I haven't killed anyone, so I'm good, right? I'm pretty righteous. I haven't broken that command, right? I'm doing well. We feel good about ourselves because we like to put ourselves up on a certain standard, right? And so we look at the Ten Commandments, and it says, these are commandments. I'm going to look at these Ten Commandments, and if I don't break these Ten Commandments, then I'm good. But when we think of ourselves in those terms, we might think, well, I'm not that great of a sinner, right? And along comes Jesus, and Jesus says, it's more than what it seems. You may hear this commandment, thou shalt not kill, but it is more than what you think it is. So Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 21 to 22, and read the yellow part with me, he says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. First, Jesus knows that anger can lead us to do some bad things, including murder. How many stories have we heard about on the news that someone got murdered because another person got so angry with them that their anger led them to, uh, to uh, do murder, right? A wife or a husband against their spouse, an employee against their employer. Time and time again, anger has led to such a great response that they ended up murdering some person. You hear about it all the time. Second, Jesus shows the full meaning of the sixth commandment and tells us that we will be judged even towards our anger, even in our anger towards another. Jesus is, in essence, saying, that all rash anger is heart murder. The word raka is a scornful word and comes from pridefulness. You fool is a spiteful word and comes from hatred. Malicious slanders like these come out of our anger towards another, and it hurts deeply those who we speak these words to, and it slowly kills the heart of another. We need to be careful to preserve Christian love and peace with all. Therefore, if at any time there is a quarrel, we should confess our fault, humble ourselves before that person, that brother or sister, and be at peace with them, if at all possible. Jesus lets us know that when we are angry, we are unfit to have communion with God, to come into God's presence when that anger is resting in us. And that anger gets that great, it's so hard to release it, to let it go. And Jesus says, you, you can't come into communion with me when you are dealing with that kind of anger. So we should re regularly examine ourselves and make sure that we are not angry with another, learning how to forgive another person. However, sometimes we are dealing with non-Christians who don't know this principle, right? And don't want to give up their anger towards us. Or maybe we're dealing with Christians who don't want to give up their anger to us. There are sometimes when it's not in our control, right? When the other person will not let it go, when the other person makes it difficult for us to release our anger. And in those cases, we simply need to release it to, to God. Walk away and let God take away that anger 
that we have towards that other person. We cannot let that reside in our being, Jesus says. Next, we see Jesus talking about adultery. In the seventh commandment, you see right there on the right side again, thou shalt not commit adultery. The seventh commandment concerns chastity, holiness in regards to relationships. It reminds us that we should be as much afraid of that which defiles the body as that which destroys it. We tend to think of adultery as committing some sexual immorality with someone who is not our spouse or someone who is married but not to us. But even in the Old Testament, adultery was thought of as something that tends to pollute our mind, tends to pollute our imagination our, and raise our passions in wrongful ways. This command is part of the, the second set of commandments. There's the first four that deal with our relationship with God and then the second set of commandments. The last six deal with our relationship to one another. And this is in that set of second, com um, second commands. We make a commitment to love and to honor our spouse, right? We make this commitment to God in front of many witnesses. We stand in front of all these witnesses and we make our vows to one another in marriage. We need to take these vows seriously. And when we don't commit the actual act of adultery, we, again, feel good about ourselves and say, hey, another commandment, checked off. I haven't done that one. I'm doing pretty well, right? I haven't killed, I haven't committed adultery. I'm doing well. I'm pretty holy. I'm pretty righteous. Again, Jesus comes along and tells us it's more than what it seems. He takes it to a diff different level. It's more challenging than we might imagine Matthew 5, 27 to 30, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is telling us here that the goal is for us to have victory over the desires of our hearts. In the Psalm 119.11, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. God wants us to be victorious over the temptations that come upon us. All of our senses and powers must be kept from those things which lead us to transgression. We have to be aware that there's so much in our world that can cause us to be led into temptation. Our world is terrible in this way now, right? I mean, pornography is at its utmost high. People who are addicted to pornography. Lustfulness is at its all-time high because of all that exists in our world. It's difficult to live in our world and not to be tempted. It is difficult to live in our world and not have some kind of lust in our hearts. Sometimes people get disillusioned in their marriages and they allow their heart to drift and they start to fantasize about other things. This is adultery. 
Or maybe you see an actor or an actress or a coworker that you're kind of tempted by, that you're kind of drawn to. This can be adultery. We have to be careful to not allow these things in our life to draw us away from our spouse, away from the, the love that we are called to fill toward our spouse, to honor that marriage that we have made. Ruth Harms Calkin wrote a, a piece called Love is So Much More, Lord, and I want to read it for you. She says, marriage, it's rough, it's tough, it's work. Anybody who says it isn't has never been married. Marriage has far bigger problems than toothpaste squeezed from the middle of the tube. Marriage means grappling and aching and struggling. It means putting up with personality weaknesses, accepting criticism, and giving each other the freedom to fail. It means sharing deep feelings about fear and rejection. It means turn self-pity into laughter and taking a walk to gain control. Marriage means gentleness and joy, toughness and fortitude, fairness and forgiveness, and a walloping amount of sacrifice. Marriage means learning when to say nothing, when to keep talking, when to push a little, and when to back off. It means acknowledging, I can't be God to you, I need him too. Marriage means you are the other part of me, I am the other part of you. We'll work through with never a thought of walking out. Marriage means two imperfect mates building permanently, giving totally in partnership with a perfect God. Marriage, my love, means us. God designed marriage to last forever. I always start my pre-marriage counseling with that statement. God designed marriage to last forever. And the reason why I do it is because through all my counseling that I've done with marriages, I understand that if someone goes into a marriage without this thinking, that marriage is meant to last a lifetime, then they have almost no hope of surviving when all these difficulties in marriage arise. Marriage was meant to last forever. But God knows that sometimes the marriage covenant is broken. And so Jesus said these words in Matthew 5, 31 to 32. He said, as it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, there's a lot in this passage that I'm not going to go into right now, but I do want to talk about this. Jesus is speaking very challenging words here. He's acknowledging here that sexual immorality is the primary reason for divorce. He is stating how God made man and woman, comprised of both sexes, to become one. And one of the key ways that people become one in their marriage is in sexual intercourse, right? Where the two become one. And sometimes when the two become one, they, they create a life born out of both of them. This intimacy is to be honored between the two of them. And when broken, destroys that covenant between a man and a woman. And so Jesus acknowledges, yes, there are times when this covenant is broken. There's times when then the marriage relationship cannot be salvaged and divorce can happen. There are other ways that the covenant is broken as well. Abuse in a relationship. 
an unwillingness to participate in the marriage and in the relationship, abandonment of your spouse, as well as many other issues. There are, these are the kinds of issues that cause that, that promise, that covenant that has been made in marriage to be broken. And God says, in your sinfulness, I know that there are times when that covenant is broken, and actually the best thing to happen is a divorce, as painful as it is. It sometimes will happen. Now, some of you who are sitting there, and maybe you're not married, and you think, well, you know, that's not for me, right? I'm, I'm not even listening right now because I'm not married. But you know one of the greatest things that I love to do when I'm marrying people is that is I have the congregation stand and I ask them to give their promise that they're going to do everything in their part to help support and encourage this couple that is getting married so that they can be encouraged and supported in their marriage when things get tough. And they know that they have friends and family all around them and are coming alongside them and encouraging them and loving them. So if you're not married, but you have friends that are married, you can be an important part in their life, in their marriage, by being a support and an encouragement to them. Then we get to our last section. I promise I will do it later. I will never miss another one of your events. I am there for you whenever you need me. These are the kinds of things we say, right? These are the kind of promises that we make to other people. The problem is with making promises is that you can't always keep your promises. You cannot say, I promise I'll do it later, because you may not be able to do that when later comes and you may not be available to do it. You cannot say, I'll never miss another one of your events. Because what if something comes up in your schedule and you do miss their events? Nothing worse than telling your child, I'll never miss one of your events, and then you miss one of their events. But Daddy, you promised. I am there for you whenever you need me. You cannot promise that because you don't know that you can fulfill that. Sometimes relationships break and you might not even be in their life at some point, right? Jesus says to us in 5, 33 to 36, again, read yellow with me. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. Jesus says straight out, it is better to not make oaths. You might think that you are a person of your word, but all it takes for you to break one promise for someone to look at you differently. We can say we will try to do something, but the less promises we make, the less promises we will break. This might sound like, negative talk, but it actually, I think, is sound teaching from Jesus. It doesn't mean that we don't commit ourselves to things, but we understand our, our limitations and our tendency to not be able to fulfill everything we want to do. Jesus instead says to us in 537, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Let your yes be yes, 
And when something doesn't work, say no. It is much easier to live this way, to say yes when it's right, to say yes when Jesus wants you to do it, to say no when it's wrong, to say no when you know God doesn't want you to do something. We are called as Christ followers to be people of our word. And when we simply live by saying yes or no, doing the best we can in our commitments, then we will be a much better example to others than trying to say, I will always be there for you. I will never let you down, right? And making these kinds of blanket promises that we might not be able to fulfill. And then the truth is, if you live with the character that God wants you to live, then you don't have to make promises, right? Your, your character will show who you are by the way you live your life. There's a story of a pastor from a church in London who one Monday morning got on the trolley and he paid his fare and he got some change back and he went and sat down. And as he sat down, he, he counted out his change and realized that he had been given too much. And so his mind began to think, what am I going to do with this extra money? And at first he thought, you know, money's been really tight. Maybe this is God's way of giving me a little extra money for the week. But then as he thought about it more and more, he thought, no, that's not right. I need to give this extra money back. And so when the trolley stopped at his stop and he went to get off, he, he gave the money back to the trolley driver and he said, um, I was accidentally given too much change back. Here's the extra. And the trolley driver Trolley driver smiled and said, it was not by accident. I was in church yesterday and I heard your sermon. This was a test. <laughs> People are watching us, right? People are watching us. And we say we are Christ followers. We say we are Christians. And people are watching us. They're looking at us. Are we people of our word? Are we going to do what we say we're going to do? Are we going to live according to the standard that God sets, us, sets for us to live? As we come to the end of the sermon, you may say, well, pastor, I don't have any problem with murder. I don't have any problem with anger. I don't have any problem with lust. I agree with Jesus' teaching on divorce and marriage. I don't break promises. I'd say, well, good for you. I encourage you in this way then. We live in a world where there are many people who are not Christ followers, who don't live by these standards. We can be not only an example to them, but we can try to challenge them to a higher standard of living, to a higher way to live their life. We can encourage them to, to know Jesus and have Jesus change their heart so that this is just normal in their life, that this is who they want to be, changing our world one person at a time, yes. And so I pray that as we reflect on this teaching of Jesus, that we will think about, is there anything here that, that God has challenged me today? Making oaths, my marriage covenant, and dealing with my anger, and living a standard of living that God sets for me. I pray that you would take this in and say, Jesus, tell me what you want me to know Help me to live for you and be that example you want me to be. Let us pray.